right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Hi everyone. I'm so delighted that you've decided to join me today for the kickoff of a brand new series I'm calling Experiencers Speak. Over the years, I've had the honor of meeting so many individuals who have shared their own extraordinary journeys into the unusual, not the least of which is contact with non-human intelligence. So many of these individuals uh, have expressed their sense of loneliness, of isolation, and of fear of being ridiculed or worse, fear of being considered delusional. Well, listen, I'm here to tell you, they are not, you are not. We must begin a more consistent dialogue about what I've called the proverbial elephant in the room, especially when it comes to our own encounters with high strangeness. Because I have a funny feeling there are a heck of a lot more people out there having experiences than what we would like to admit. So in that vein, we're going to begin a more consistent dialogue here at Higher Journeys, where you will hear from more of these experiencers and learn more about these extraordinary encounters and hopefully hopefully one day we as a collective can and will embrace this as a very real part of our shared reality well speaking of extraordinary the person that you're about to meet is a name you may not recognize because for years her incredible story of alien abduction paranormal encounters and other areas of high strangeness was documented notably by the late ET contact researcher and hypnotherapist Bud Hopkins under the pseudonym of Kathy Davis. This woman's account was so incredibly bizarre, so incredibly curious, that it was Hopkins' landmark book called Intruders, I'm sure you've heard of that, that was based on her story, which is centered around a life-changing event that took place on June 30th of 1983. Now, at 62 years of age, Deborah Jordan Cobble, her real name, is telling all like never before in a brand new book entitled Extraordinary Contact, Life Beyond Intruders. As I have become more familiar with Deborah's story and her odyssey-ridden life, I'd call it, that breaks just about every rule as to how reality is supposed to work, I'm reminded yet again that life itself is filled with mystery. But as participants in this labyrinth of high strangeness, I feel it's our job and our right to explore that mystery. So let's explore now with ET Contact experiencer, Deborah Jordan Cobble. Deborah Jordan Cobble, it's been quite a few years, my dear, since we had, uh, I had the pleasure of attending a conference by our mutual friend and colleague, Vaughn Smith at Ciro in Los Angeles. And I will never forget the conversation that we had, not just about your incredible experiences, contact experiences that we're going to get into. But I learned a lot about you and your foundation and your resilience and your your bravery, your courage. We're going to talk about all that today. I'm Thank just you. glad to see you again. How are you doing? I'm doing point? really I'm doing really well. Um I retired uh basically in September last year. So that's Congrats. good. Yeah, I feel I feel good and you know, I had some health issues um, last year, m- mid-year, and and finally, after three surgeries and two hospitalizations, I've gotten mm-hmm. it all resolved, and I feel uh, better than brand new. I'm just, you know, really revving up and getting ready to go. <laughs> revving up and get ready to go. Well, this is a great. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us and 
continued Godspeed. That's that's great. Thanks. We need you now more than ever, uh, Deborah, because of all that we're going through on so many levels. Courage is what we have in you. Courage in sharing your story, which you just told me off air. You've been sharing this uh, story that you're going to share with our audience for 38 years. And I said, uh, journeyers, I call my audience the journeyers. I said, uh, if, if there's any way you can give us a condensed version, because it's so there's so many moving parts. And I, I don't want to exhaust you. But I say we, I don't think there's any way of avoiding it. Let's begin at the beginning. The beginning, which wasn't your beginning, you would discover, but June 30th, 1983, nearly 40 years ago, nearly 40 years ago, your life changed. What happened? Well, I was living with my parents and uh, I was a, I was a single mom, had two little kids that were, you know, preschool age. And I was living with my parents and I had been sewing. Uh, with a neighbor behind us who was a friend of mine for extra spending money. And I was on my way to her house one night to cut some patterns for her. And um, I uh, was standing at the kitchen window, washing my hands and getting ready to leave. And I noticed a strange light in the pump house of the swimming pool in my parents' backyard. I um, made a mention to my mom and she didn't seem too concerned about it. So I left and I decided to go ahead and check it out one more time before I left, just to make sure, because I was about to leave my mom alone with my two little ones. My dad was working the second shift at a local uh, board plant. So I didn't, you know, really want to, I, I was thinking of prowlers, burglars, not aliens or UFOs, not by any means. And, um, so I drove along the side driveway because it's a it was it's a sandstone tri-level. So it had a split driveway. One part went down to the front and the other part went alongside back and around in front of my dad's workshop and the swimming pool. And then, you know, back I went to the turnaround and came back through and, and everything looked OK. And I didn't see anybody, but I did notice that the pump house or the 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 pedestrian door to the garage was now open. And I knew that was not supposed to be open but instead of stopping I went on ahead and went to my friend's house and I called my mom and I told her the pedestrian door is open I did not see anybody out there and she said don't worry about it your dad will be home soon enough I'm just I'll just lock the doors and everything will be fine I'm like okay so I hung up the phone and just as soon as I hung it up it rang again and I picked it back up uh because I was just standing there with my hand practically on it. And uh, it was my mom. And she said, I want you to come home right now. And I said, why? What's the matter? And uh, I'm sure my friend and her husband could hear my alarm at hearing my mom like this, because my mom was not one to be dramatic or scared. So, uh, and my friend's husband said, hey, tell, him to tell her to call the police. That's what we pay him for. And she heard him and she said, no, I don't want anybody here but you. And I'm like, okay. So I got my car and I went back. I got out of the, to the, I got out of the house or I got out of the car and I went into the house to the, in the little side Florida room where mom was. And um, I grabbed a shotgun that was next to the trash compactor because I knew it was there. I also knew it wasn't loaded. My mom, my mom said to me, you know, that's not loaded. And I said, yeah, but the, whoever I, come upon isn't going to know it till I'm close enough to hit him with it. So 
I went out there and looked around again. I'm not thinking about anything weird. I'm thinking about prowlers. And that was, that was a um, out of character for me because I was not. And I now, yeah, I'd probably do that. <laughs> but back then, no, that is way out of character for me. I don't know what came over me, but I did it. And I, uh, Looked around the yard, didn't see anything, checked out the pump house and it looked normal. I did find my dog who had been in the garage out under my dad's ladder truck, but she wouldn't come out from under it to me for anything. So I just left her and I went to the garage. I went in and walked around and started looking around, didn't see anybody. And I suddenly felt hot. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I got to get out of here right now because I started feeling strange. And when I hit the open doorway, something hit me in the chest. Like a ball of light that was so intense that I know my eyes were closed. They had to be closed. I mean, that would be your normal reaction. But yet it, I could still see it and it hurt. And I could feel every the way I described, I could feel every single individual molecule of my body vibrate all independently of each other. I could feel it. And I, 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 it started in my middle gut and spread down my legs and my arms around my head and all this intense light. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, I'm dead. I just remember thinking I'm dead. And, um, I don't know how long that lasted because I time like literally stopped for me at that moment, I don't know how long that lasted or how much time passed, but it finally stopped. The vibrating stopped. The uh, intensity of the light got a lot less painful. And um, I realized I was a little bit farther out on the patio now in the doorway. Somebody had pulled down on my right shoulder from behind and I could feel what I, it felt like a burning needle shoved in my head through my ear. I was just messing with my ear a little while ago because it still bugs me sometimes. But um, hmm. I, uh, uh, th I, then I, that's when I noticed the, what I thought were like children in the, in the yard moving around. My vision was horrible. It, I had big splotches of, of white, in my vision that I couldn't see since you good. got, since you got sort with of zapped that, with that light was so intense. And it was like, it was like getting my picture taken with one of those old Polaroid flash cubes. And I didn't blink in time and, you know, it got the full blow effect and, but I could see movement out there in front of me and I thought they were kids. And I thought to myself, why are these kids in our backyard? Why are these kids in my mom's yard? And they were, coming from different directions in the yard and they kind of lined up in front of me a little bit off to my right further up in the yard. But then they kind of just sort of glided down in front of me. They weren't coming at me and I was watching them. Uh, I, I, I saw a ball of light in front of me, maybe 20 or 25 feet in front of me about as high up off the ground as I was tall. And I'm five foot three. And it went down really slow and it came right back up and stopped where it started. And I felt in that moment that it was looking at me for some reason. I don't know why. And that's, and then I noticed this thing. Well, and we've called it a craft for 38 years because of any lack of any other way to describe it. But 
thinking back, I don't think even six little kids could get in this thing and fly anywhere because it was just that small. It wasn't much bigger than the swimming pool pump house. What now? What was this? You called it a craft. You're not talking about the mark, are you? Or no, I'm not. The mark showed up a few days. Okay, we'll later. get to that. So, what did this thing look like? This object? Well, it was egg shaped. It, it was narrow. It was wider in the center, low, and then got smaller. It was just it shaped like shaped like an egg, and then the bottom part of it, uh, I couldn't tell, but I didn't. I got the feeling that it wasn't completely on the ground. Because I thought I could see some kind of wavering of the movement of it, but I couldn't see real good. I, I could only, you know, and it could have been my eyes that was doing that. But, uh, and it had a couple long skinny things coming out of the middle of it that were on the ground. But I didn't, I wasn't sure what those were for. I mean, they seemed too skinny to be holding weight. So, but I, you know, and, and I don't know what it was. I don't know how all those little guys got in there and where it went. I don't, I don't know, but I, all I can do is tell you what it looked like. And it had a ball of white light on it. Uh, and uh, I, I remember I didn't want to look at it. I thought to myself, Oh shit. When I saw it, I thought, Oh, I, you know, I didn't want to look at it. I couldn't really move my body, but I could move my eyes. And I thought I didn't, I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to see it but I didn't not want to see it because I, I needed to know where it was in relationship to me, if it was coming closer to me or, you know, I mean, I, those are, that's just the things I can that I remember thinking I, I didn't want to see this. I, I didn't want to not see it. And um, I remember at one point thinking, all right, I heard a voice and I never saw anybody speaking to me, but I heard a voice from behind me say, it was unfortunate that I had felt this pain. And then uh, at another point, I remember thinking, oh, my God, my kids. And then the voice, the same voice says, your, your children are fine. You know, that I wasn't, I shouldn't worry about them, but my, your children are fine. And uh, the next thing I remember is I hear my name being called. And as soon as I heard my name, it was like someone snapped their fingers and everything that I just described to you, I forgot. I don't know how that works, but that's what happened. And I remember turning and walking up the sidewalk the, or the back patio to the second set of steps to the um, upper pat porch where my mom was actually had her head out the kitchen door. And, and I later found out it was her that had called my name. And she asked me, is everything okay? And I remember saying, yeah, it's cool. But I'm thinking to myself... I don't want to sew anymore. I just want to get wet. I just feel weird. And so I talked to my friend and I said, Hey, how about instead of sewing, let's go swimming. She's like, okay, that sounds good. So I go back to her house, her and her daughter come back and we're walking across the backyard and she steps on something and her daughter steps on something in the yard. And, and her mom thought maybe she stepped on a bee, but we couldn't see anything. And she was complaining that her foot was tingling and then, and then it was getting numb. And Deanna's like, get your foot in the cool pool water. If it's a bee sting, that'll help it feel better, you know. And uh, But we never did see anything. And all three of us were starting to feel kind of queasy. And we were only in the pool for maybe 10, 15 minutes maybe. And uh, 
I remember my eyes started burning and I remember seeing, starting to see halos around all the outdoor lights, you know, the outdoor lights had come on. It was dark now. And uh, I remember seeing halos around them kind of like when, I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid, when you swim underwater with your eyes open and the chlorine too much, mm -hmm. you'll see halos around. Well, that's what my eyes were doing. And they felt like chlorine burning, but I hadn't got my head in the water, open my eyes. So I, I wasn't sure what was going on, but I knew I didn't feel great. And, and they didn't either. They were kind of feeling, I remember Deanna saying something about feeling queasy. And then she's like, let's go to White Castle. <laughs> you know what White Castle is? Yes. It's like a 24 hour burger joint. They make I these remember. little square hamburgers that are Midwest particularly. Yeah. Oh my God. They're open 24 hours. And I'm, I'm like, okay, let's go to White Castle. She's like, maybe we'll feel better if we get something to eat. Well, we never made it to White Castle. We that that uh, that White Castle run was aborted, and we uh, they ended up going home. And I went um, home the next morning when I woke up. My eyes were swelled so bad that they were completely shut. They were running, and I was in so much pain. My mom took me to the emergency room, and I remember when we were in the emergency room, there was a doctor in there. I, I think he. He was an actual eye doctor, and I don't know why he was in the emergency room, but he said, I remember him asking my mom if she could take me across the street to his office because he had an office across from the ER, the hospital, and that he would be able to, he'd be better equipped to examine me because my eyes were so bad. And my mom said, yeah, she took me over there. They got me in. And um, first thing he asked me is, have you looked into the ARC? of a welder's torch. And I'm like, no, I have not. <laughs> and why would I? And I don't know anybody who welds, you know, and I'm not, I'm not telling him about what happened the night before, because at that point, I don't remember it. But you did remember something happened. You just couldn't remember the details. I, I didn't remember any of that happening. I remember I felt crappy. I felt weird, but I didn't remember any of the details until I saw the mark in the yard. A few days later, mom, and all of us, all you know, it was 4th of July weekend. We, our mom's house was the one with the swimming pool. My family's tradition was to go out and spend like $400 on Kmart fireworks and annoy our neighbors. So, uh, and have a cookout and the kids all swam. So we're all doing that on the 4th of July weekend that came up. And um, the, uh, so it was a few days later and um the kids all run outside to the swimming pool with their towels. And then my nephew comes back in. He says, grandma, what's wrong with your yard? And so we all, all the adults go back out there and look, and there's that mark. I'm going to stop you right there because I want the audience for the benef benefit of the audience to know we it's referred to as the mark in your book. Um, well, go ahead and describe what it is. And then I want to talk a little bit about what it really could be, but go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it was, a, it was an eight foot diameter circle. And it was out past that lower patio in front of the uh, pedestrian door of the garage out in the yard. And it wasn't too terribly far from my dad's ham radio tower in town. It was a hundred foot tower. And um, Interesting. it was eight feet in diameter. And there was a 49 foot streak that came off of it that went right across, like diagonally all the way across that backyard and ended in a perfect arc up by the driveway, the side drive that I had gone down previously and it was the the streak was about two feet wide and it was uniform all the way and the arc at the end was perfect and all the grass inside it was just kind of laid down it wasn't crushed or crumbled but it just looked like each blade had just laid down 
and turned this weird grayish beige color. And the dirt under it was hard as a rock and had a slightly weird smell to it. Um, I mean, so hard. I was a hundred pounds heavier than I am now. And I'm out there with a spade and my BFF reminds me later here. We recently were talking about, she goes, remember we were out there with your mom's tablespoons trying to dig the stuff up and we mm. ruined all of her silverware. Mm. That's when I got the spade out and I'm jumping up and down the spade, barely dusting up little chunks of it. That's how hard it was. And there was a crack on one side. Like it almost looked like some of the dirt had been pushed kind of. And uh, there was a big crack right down the middle of this pushed up dirt. And I had a, like a foot long school ruler. And I thought, well, let's get down here and see how far down the crack goes. Well, I dropped the ruler and, and it disappeared. <laughs> I couldn't even see it with the flashlight. It was gone. So I don't know how far down this soil mess went. And uh, it stayed there. That mark in the yard remained for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Snow melted off of it the first year that we, that it was there. Every time we'd have a snow, a, you know, inch or two of snow, within 30 minutes, you'd look out the window and, and it would just like appear like a crop circle in the, in the I was going to say what you're describing is almost like with the blades of grass kind of laying down, that's sort of typical of, uh, if, if they're authentic crop circles, what you see. Let's let's fast forward just a little bit because there's so many moving parts to your story, Deborah. And I I know we're not going to be able to get is. to everything, but I want to get to the point. We we know something weird was going on there with this mark, and I dare say this is a highly charged uh, EMF situation going on. But let's talk about when that mark served as a trigger when the floodgates opened for you. If you're enjoying this episode, along with all of the subjects that we cover here on Higher Journeys, then I invite you to join our members only community on Patreon, where we go even deeper into the conversations with the guests that you know and love. Not only does your membership ensure that we can keep this work going and growing, but you'll also get immediate access to our exclusive after shows. Get up close and personal with the guests of the show, along with many other member perks. So click on the link below to join now or visit higherjourneys.com where you'll find the Patreon link. We'll see you on the journey. Thanks. It was as, as soon as we saw it and everybody was out there, my whole family was out there looking at it going, what the hell? And um, my mom says, oh, that's where our UFO landed the other night. And I looked at my mother and I said, what? Because <laughs> I remember thinking, why did she say that? And then, boom, I started to remember that night. I remembered the light. I, re I, I could see two big black eyes like superimposed over this mark as I'm looking at it. And it was at that point, I felt like I lost my mind. I mean, none of this made sense. And I think I had, a, I really feel like I had a nervous breakdown in the, in the few weeks that it, it followed that I started to remember things about that night. What, I started to remember what I just told you the, the whole thing about the light and the craft thing and the ch kids in the yard. And I also started remembering some strange things that had happened to me when I was younger that I had forgotten about. I just, like filed it off in some place in my brain and said, I don't know what that is. And okay, let's move along. But uh, 
all that stuff started coming back and I started having, I, I, I already had anxiety problems from teenage years and that came back with a vengeance, panic attacks, not being able to sleep at night, um, dreams that made no sense and, uh, worrying about my kids. I would, I would lay in their room between their twin beds at night, wide awake until the sun came up. I couldn't sleep if it was dark outside. Once it was light, I was all right. I couldn't go to the bathroom in that bathroom upstairs that overlooked the mark in the yard because I felt like somebody was going to pull me out the window. And I never had, I didn't remember having feelings like that before. It was terror all the time and I was out of control. I had read, or I should say I had attempted to read Missing Time a few months prior to that. And every time I tried to read it, I'd have a panic attack. But I kept thinking my sister had, my older sister had a, an experience in 1965 mm -hmm. where she remembered pulling into the church parking lot and there's a whole UFO above, right above her car. And she said that the car, this thing picked her whole car up with her in it. And then the next thing she remembers, she wakes up, it's dark out, many hours have passed. And now it's time to pick mom up from bingo. I mean, and she, and she told us this story for years and we believed her. She had no reason to make it up. But whenever us little kids would pick on her about it, you know, she'd get mad and she wouldn't say it. She wouldn't talk about it anymore. But, um, so I kept thinking of her when I read Missing Time, thinking, okay, this what might led you to, to my sister. What led you to get that book, Deborah? I don't know. I, you know, I was a single mom and I did not have any money. And I, at one point when I lived in the apartments, I lived across the street from a library and I used to go over to library like all the time and get books, books for me, books for my kids. Cause it was free, free entertainment and something to do that didn't cost any money. So I'd get books and I picked up Missing Time. Um, I we, We've always had, my family had always been interested in uh, like ghostly stuff. My mom liked Sylvia Brown on when she was on TV in the 80s and stuff like that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, anybody remembers who Gene Dixon was? My mom used to mm -hmm. say things to my dad like, what do I look like, Gene Dixon? You know, <laughs> psychic stuff. Uh, not too much on aliens, but more psychic and, and things like that. So, I mean, I was raised around that. And I also was raised where we had a lot of weird paranormal things happen. And you talk about that in your book. That's yeah. Right. To me, that was normal. I thought everybody's lived that way. That was just right. life. It wasn't until I got to school and started telling people about it that I realized I probably shouldn't say, <laughs> I don't think that everybody has this, but more uh, people than will admit. Some that's, of the people that laugh at you, I'm convinced they're in denial about their own experiences, but that's another rabbit hole we don't have to go down right now. Let's talk uh -huh. about that intergenerational situation. Let's just go to the heart of, heart of it, Deborah. Mm -hmm. Your sister had the experience in 1965 that she can recall. There's probably more. Talk about your mother a little bit. I mean, your, your dad, your mom, your aunt, your cousin. We're talking about a classic case of generational contact here, right? I, I think so. It, my my mom was adopted, so there's not a lot known about her actual hmm. birth family. She was adopted by a master sergeant in the army when she was two from Louisville, and then was taken. And she lived in China for a couple of years. She lived in Rhode Island. You know, she lived where wherever my my grandfather was stationed. That's where she went. But um, 
my mother did recall, and she it's funny, she never said anything to any of us about this until Bud came during one of his visits during Let's the talk interview. about Bud. Let's talk he, about enter Bud Hopkins. He, Everyone knows who that is. Go knows, for it. He just knows just what questions to ask. I mean, you know, and non-leading questions. And he asked my mom about something, uh, you know, if she'd ever had remembered anything strange in her childhood. And she immediately said she remembered being chased through the woods by a little boy and feeling very afraid more so than she probably would have been if she was just being chased by a little boy. I don't know, but uh, I, and then she didn't really elaborate. I didn't, I don't recall her saying much more after that, but I thought that was strange, you know, that she talked about being chased by a little boy. And then when I was like five or six, I had an encounter with a little boy as well. And then um, my father, my grandmother always swore up and down that my dad was psychic. She said he was born with a veil over his face. And I had mm -hmm. to look that up to figure out what that meant. Mm -hmm. I guess the af the the thing was all still intact when he was born or something. But she, she always told the story of one time when he was a little boy, he did not want to go to school because he told my grandmother that the neighborhood was going to catch on fire and he didn't want to leave the, her. And she, of course, you know, made him go to school. And sure enough, about by the time he had was to come back from school, a bunch of houses in the, on the street were on fire. And my dad always said he could smell death and do it. When my mother passed away, I was with her in the hospital because uh, I knew it was coming. I knew it was close and I wasn't leaving because I lived 50 miles away. And I spent the night with her the night before. And at midnight, I hear this commotion in the hallway and I look out and here's my old man hobbling down the hallway. He woke my brother up and he made my brother bring him to the hospital at midnight. And I said, what the hell are you doing here, dad? And he said, your mother called me. And I said, no, she didn't. I've been sitting next to her all night and she's been asleep. And he goes, did I say she used the phone? <laughs> I said, okay. Mm. <laughs> and she passed away at 11 o'clock the next morning. So you obviously are part of a legacy of experiencers, not just of ET contact per se, but a whole litany of experiences. You talk about this in your book. By the way, I want to give a plug to Extraordinary Contact, Life Beyond Intruders. I want to talk about Bud Hopkins and how you got hooked up with him so much there. But here's the one of the points I want to make about that. You make it very clear, Deborah. I've heard you say this before in talks, and you mentioned this in the book, that you feel that there's a correlation between the, the contact phenomenon, the abduction phenomenon, and other paranormal-esque experiences. Uh, talk about that for a little bit, because you've had so many different types of encounters, not one size fits all, definitely. No, I've had a weird life. I wanted to title my book Weird Life, but the <laughs> publisher thought that probably wouldn't be the greatest title. <laughs> I'm like, why not? It's true. But uh, yes, I do. I feel that way. You know, obviously, I, like I said before, we've had what people consider paranormal things happen all around us all my life. And I just took it for granted that everybody could see these things and and had these happen when I found out it, that maybe people aren't talking about it like I do. But um, and. Uh, for instance, like the the craft in the backyard so to speak. Uh, 
I don't feel like that was something that people fly from another planet to get here. And I felt, I don't know how to put it because these things came to me in dreams. I, I would have dreams, lucid dreams and waking thoughts that would uh, pester me until I'd write them down uh, about, you know, things and the world around me. And, and I felt like someone was trying to tell me to teach me that what I think is the world around me is only just one teeny little sliver of what's really going on all around me. And that um, like the encounters that I had, like in the backyard and uh, the, when I saw the blue guy in mom's landing upstairs and when the two black, black eyed, little gray head, big headed gray guys came in my bedroom when I was a young married person. Hmm. Also, I had a, you know, a, a, less than a year after I had the dream or I not, it wasn't a dream. I remember them in my room, the two guys with the black box. They said, I'd see it again and I'd know what to do. You Talk know. about, let, let's stop because you're, you're giving us so much stuff. I'm sorry. I'm just, no, that's okay. Well, there's so much. That's what I'm saying. Deborah, bless your heart. How <laughs> on so earth hard. have you? It's hard, but it's also, there's just so many different layers and yet they seem to be all connected. They are all intertwined They're and it's all like an onion with a, that onion layer upon layer upon layer of life and things and they're all connected. The, the two gentlemen that came into your room with a black box, were was this uh, what you deem to be men in black? No, these were great. These were these great were type great things. But you have had uh, a couple of encounters that you believe were government connected, yes? You want to yeah, talk about that? I, I believe they were humans. Um, I can tell you what I saw. Uh, I don't know exactly who they were connected with but they were people at least i think they were they looked tell like us, give us a little snapshot of what happened on one occasion if you would oh i was uh this one guy had been chasing me for months and i finally gave in uh and uh we dated talked and i agreed to go to his uh cabin he had down southern part of the state for a weekend i'm a grown woman you know my mom watched my kids for me while i was gonna go and um we got to the driveway of his house. We pulled up and I thought I saw somebody like goofing around in his shrubs or bushes around the cabin. And I remember getting out of the car and saying, Hey, I, I think there's somebody out here. And I, I know he looked over the car at me and his face looked shocked. And then the next thing I remember, I am, I can't see, I feel like I'm being drugged and, I feel like I'm being driven somewhere. Then I feel like I'm being, I'm on a giant elevator going down and down. You know, that feeling of dropping when you're on an mm -hmm. elevator mm -hmm. a long way. And um, when whatever was covering my head is removed, I see a long hallway with lots of tile and glass and chrome. I see glass with wire in it. I see a, slot that the guy puts a card in and the doors kind of swing open extra big. And you got, this was, this was a long time before 
the key slots at your hotel. This was mm -hmm. th that this was a long before that. Um, and then being in this room. And then I realized that I, I, I was conscious, but I couldn't fight. I don't know what I was like zombified. And uh, they just they they cut my hair. They took my nails. They scraped my skin. They just took stuff from they just went all over me. And I noticed there were other tables. I realized I was in a, a huge room that was separated by glass walls with other tables. I didn't see any other people. I was only one, but there were a bunch of them. And then it was a giant room. And uh, at one point, this man, and I will never forget his voice. It was deep country, Southern draw. And he was an older man. God, he's probably a hundred years old now because he looked like he was, you know, I was a kid basically. And he had all white hair. His face was kind of ruddy reddish and his nose kind of reminded me of W.C. Fields, kind of bulb, bulbish ish, you know, because I, I remember studying his face, you know, and he says to me, oh, looky here, you got a little bug in your ear. I'm going to take it out and you're going to feel a lot better. And he pokes me in the ear, same ear that I got jabbed in. And um, the same one that bugs me all the time. And uh, he pulls this thing out and he shows it to me. It's like on the end of a, I don't, but I think I said it looked like it was on the end of a roach clip, like a long pair of pliers with this little pinch thing on it. You know, <laughs> he said, look at that. And at first it looked like a, a, like a mosquito or something, you know, with legs and then the legs kind of went away and it was just this teeny weeny little ball. And he said something to me and then he said, ah, oh, you'll feel a lot better now. And I said, uh, he said, I don't even know why I'm bothering to tell you any of this. Cause you're not going to remember none of it. And he kind of laughed. And I said, I said, I am, I will remember it. I will never forget this. And pew, the next thing I know, he was like, okay, knock her out. The next thing I know, I'm waking up and I'm in my, um, this guy's living room wow. couch. And I look up over the couch and I see a bunch of red lights. And at first I don't know what it, I'm disoriented. Then I think, Oh, that's, he was an EMT, you know, wherever it was, he lived on his, like a volunteer. The person so, that you were spending the weekend with. Yes. Right. So I thought, Oh, that's his scanner. That's his police scanner. But he's, he gets up, he fixes coffee. He doesn't speak to me. he, he acts like he is completely freaked out and the date is over. He take, he took me home. He's like, come on, I got to take you home. We have to leave. I'm like, uh, okay. Why? You know? And he's like, no, something's come up and I've got, I got to go. So you're gonna have to go home. He drove me all the way back home. It was like an hour or so ride, maybe a little longer, maybe a little longer than that. Dead silent. The most awkward ride I've ever been on. And I told uh, my friends, if, he could have just slowed down and shoved me out the door as he drove past my parents' home. I think he would have. That's how much he couldn't wait to get rid of me. And uh, I felt like hell. I felt like I'd been hit by a train. I felt horrible. My head hurt. Everything. I felt, I felt like I had the worst hangover on the planet. I felt miserable. And I went, I I fell asleep. I took a nap and I, I realized I started remembering all this stuff, this weird stuff. And the more awake I was, the more I, I remembered. You said and you would remember. You said you would remember. I told him. 
I am hard headed, <laughs> but, uh, um, my goodness. Uh, you know, I never heard from that guy again. He never called me. I talked to my friend that who had, she, she had introduced me to him because they worked together and, uh, he transferred to a different plant. She didn't see him anymore. She never talked to him. And then he showed back up at the plant one time. It was a while later, quite a while later. And she said he looked completely different. He'd like grown a beard. And, and Do you believe something happened to him? Let's back up for a second. Yeah. I could stay on this part of your multifaceted journey for a while. Because this is very curious to me. A, do you, it sounds like there was a superimposed encounter on top of the fact that, so you were at this cabin going away for a romantic weekend. And next thing you know, it's almost like you bilocated. It sounds like what you described was being on a craft with a being that looked human, but maybe was a, a non-human intelligence. But somehow this guy was aware. D do you think somebody came and kidnapped you? Do you think the beings may have come and kidnapped you when he witnessed it? What do you, I'm sure you racked your brain trying to figure out how this happened. I did. I've racked my brain for it for a long time. I talked to my friend Rhonda about it multiple times and she knew him, um, you know, for a while. And she was the one that convinced me to give him a chance because he really liked me. He thought I was cute and, you know, uh, he was more affectionate than I was used to, but I thought maybe that's a good thing. Cause yeah, you know, I have not the greatest I have had at that point. I hadn't had the best, you know, <laughs> choices for men in my life. So I thought, Oh, okay. She convinced me to give him a chance, you know, and, uh, he really liked me. I really felt like it. And I, the look on his face right before I went black was one of sheer terror. Hmm. And I don't know if it was because, you know, of him, what he saw, I don't know what he saw. And he never, told me and I have no idea and I don't know if he was a part of it. I kind of feel like he was not a part of it mm -hmm. because of the fear that I saw in his face mm -hmm. when right before I blacked out, I, I kind of, I, I want to say that, you know, he was a, uh, an inadvertent, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person, mm -hmm. you know, who it was and what, what it was, why it was done. I I'm not sure. I don't know. I can tell you what I remember, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't uh, some kind of screen memory or, or something else. Well, you the talked thing, about that. Yeah. yeah th there was an odd thing that happened later that was kind of somewhat connected to this. I was, it was a long, it was years later and I was uh, giving one of my first time, you know, I hadn't been out speaking very often, but I was in, I think it was in Dallas or somewhere in Texas giving a talk. And there was a question and answer session at the end. And, um, you know, I was pretty new at it. And, but these, I noticed these two guys were in there and they were, um, they both had sunglasses on in the auditorium, which I thought was kind of weird, but, uh, and they had on suits. And during the question and answer session, one of them stood up and said, where did you get this information? And I said, what do you mean? Where did I get the information? I was there. And I'm telling you what I remember. I'm telling you what I saw. And they both got up and left. And I got the creeps from it. It creeped me out really bad. Yeah. And I don't think anybody else really paid much attention because there were people were like firing questions at me. 
But afterwards, when I was walking from the auditorium to my hotel room, which meant I, I had to walk outside, I suddenly got so paranoid and I got so freaked out because something in my brain clicked and I thought, I think one of those guys might have been that doctor or that old guy that that took the bug out of your that ear I saw, that that I saw when I they were taking the bug out of my ear. Yeah. I thought for a minute it was it was either him or somebody with with him that I recognized. It I got so paranoid that I think I I actually even called someone and said, oh, "I'm kind of freaked out. I wanted to know, you know those two guys in the dark suits with the sunglasses on, do they come to there often? Do you know who they are?" You know, cuz I was like kind of wigged out about it. Right. I have a feeling we need to take a little bit of a break because this is, you know, this is heavy for for all y'all that are watching. It may be heavy for you. You can pause it if you want and take a breath because this is this is like a lot. But we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want you to give our audience uh, a little bit of a taste of your incredible journey with the now late Bud Hopkins. So uh, let's take this quick break and we'll be right back. We are living at a time of great challenge and incredible opportunity. A time when taking life into our own hands, charting our own course, and finding our own answers is more accessible than ever before. During this time, you may be asking yourself, what am I called to do? What if I could discover not only my own inner healing power, but help others all over this planet discover theirs? We all have the ability to heal ourselves, but it takes a special approach, a unique approach. Quantum Healing Hypnosis Technique, also known as QHHT, a method developed by pioneering hypnotherapist and past life regression expert Dolores Cannon, is the approach that thousands have used and taught to access the deeper aspect of the self for healing at the core level. We all have the ability to tap into the higher self, the oversoul, the higher consciousness, and we have the means to help others to do the same. QHHT is designed to help the individual access the subconscious, the storehouse of all information through visualization at the deepest level imaginable, a process that Dolores Cannon discovered and refined during her decades of working with individuals from around the globe. Training with QHHT will provide the guidance and give you the tools to help others tap that incredible force within. Now you can access this exclusive training online, bringing the tools needed right to you so you can assist others in finding their own answers and achieve total healing. This is powerful and needed now more than ever. Be a part of the pioneering work and legacy of Dolores Cannon by learning QHHT. Start today by clicking on the link in the description of this show to get started. And when you do, don't forget to mention Higher Journeys to get a 10% course discount when you sign up. It's time we all take back control of our lives and chart the course for success at every level. It's time to discover the power of quantum healing hypnosis technique by helping others to help themselves. And by doing this, we are helping to heal the world. Hi, everyone. We're back with our amazing guest, Deborah Jordan Cobble, telling her hell of a story, uh, a true story. We were just talking offline and you're 62 years young with another 62 to go. And let's hope that the latter 62 are a little bit more even keeled and what we call normal. But I don't know. This this is your this is your world. This is your world. And it's an amazing, an amazing journey. As a matter of fact, this is all based, by the way, on uh, Deborah's brand new book. I would say it's pretty new. It came out in May or June. 
uh, called Extraordinary Contact Life Beyond Intruders. And when I say the word intruders, that would be the title of the late Bud Hopkins, a landmark book of which Deborah was the central figure. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into Bud's story. But before we do, speaking of your beautiful book, I want to play a little message from someone that wanted to say hello to you. So let's listen to this message. And on the back end, we'll, we'll continue talking. Hi, Deb. Congratulations on the success of your new book. I was so happy and proud that I was part of it. Thank you for asking me to write the forward. And I'm also very proud of you for your bravery and coming forward and going through everything you had to go through. Um, like so many people, I admire whenever anybody wants to come forward just to help the next person out there. So keep up the good work and I'll see you soon. Oh my God. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> that is so sweet. Yvonne is a love. As soon as you confirmed that you could do the show, I said, I'm going to call Yvonne up and make sure that she says a little something. And she was delighted. Oh. And I'm talking to the audience now. You need to know, if you don't already, that the woman that is sitting before you right now, this beautiful woman with the most beautiful eyes, by the way, I might say. <laughs> Thank you. My mom used to say the eyes are the window to the soul. You've got a rich soul. The courage that you have exhibited, not just right now, but for years, culminating in this beautiful book, is one that I know God is smiling on, Deborah. And when Yvonne says she's uh, honored to know you and proud, I know she means it because not everyone can do this. This is one of the reasons why we're doing this show and others like them to show people it's okay to discuss these things. This is one of the reasons why you're doing the work you're doing, yes, because you want to help other people not be so inhibited by their experiences. Yes, absolutely. I mean, with a, with each step of the book that I wrote, that I'm, I, I would pray, God, please make the right things come out of my mouth. Make me type the right words because I'm like, I told you, I, I don't feel like I'm a writer and I'm not highly educated. I'm talking, I'm writing like I talk and I talk from my heart and only way to do it. It's beautiful. And I, you know, every time I've gone and spoke publicly somewhere before I go out there, I'm like, you put me here for some reason. So please make something come out of my mouth that makes sense to somebody. Cause you know, I feel like I was born to do this. Then what I want to do is I want people to, no matter how crazy you think your story is, uh, there's somebody out there with more crazy stuff, I promise you, and I'm probably one of them. And don't be afraid to speak out. I've been talking about this publicly now with my own name since, you know, 92 when I came out with the first book that my sister and I wrote together. And um, I, I just feel like if people, if I, I feel blessed because I was lucky I had the support of my family and friends and neighbors and coworkers. And, you know, because most of these people experience something with me, mm -hmm. you yes. know, most of my experiences have been not alone. And so I'm, I'm blessed in that way because so many people aren't, and it's so hard for so many people. I've heard uh, so many stories over the years and um, 
just like we were talking about uh, before, you know, with this uh, disclosure now and all these pilots are starting to step forward. They're all, they're getting fed up with being threatened because mm -hmm. they know what they saw and mm -hmm. they're credible witnesses and they need to be taken seriously. We are credible witnesses and we need to be taken seriously. And That's I want right. people like me to not be afraid That's right. to, to see me. And if somebody wants to come at me, come on. I'm, it's okay. The universe put me here mm -hmm. and I have full faith that the universe is going to protect me and guide me through whatever it is I need to do while I'm here. Here, so, here. Amen, I, girl. And, and I want, and I just want people, you know, like me, I'm just a regular person. I'm probably like, I might even be your next door neighbor and you don't even know it. You know, I worked all my life. This is not how I make my living. I don't make money from this. I have worked real jobs. 50, 60 hours a week, my entire life. I worked since I was 15 and a half years old mm -hmm. and I've raised kids and I have grandkids and I have a home and a husband and two Yorkies and a cat. And I, I just, you know, I, I have a regular life, but I, and I try to keep it all in perspective, but I know for a fact that this world that we're living in is not what we think it is. Not at all. And there's a, I want people to wake up and realize what's going on around them. There's no such thing as synchronicity to me and the universe speaks to you. You just have to learn how to listen to it. And I, I just, a whole bunch of stuff opened up inside of me. And I felt mm -hmm. like in writing the books, the reason I did it was because I wanted to reach out to that other person out there that was like me back in 1983 mm -hmm. and say, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. It's going to be all right. And here, take my hand and we'll go together. You know, Bud Hopkins wrote the introduction to, was it uh, the book that you wrote with your sister initially? Uh -huh. He wrote mm -hmm. the introduction. I want to read a quote uh, from him that struck me really, really heavily. It was the, at the end of the introduction. And then I'm going to have you give just a couple, couple minute overview of how you hooked up with him and how you're the one who really, I'm going to put it on the record, launched his career. But let me quote his career, I should say, as uh, as an in-depth researcher. He said in, in uh, part of the, the introduction, quote, over the years, I've learned many things from my investigations into the UFO abduction phenomenon. I know that some kind of non-human intelligence is interacting with us, but on its own terms, telling us only what it wishes to and manipulating us with cold objectivity. I also know that some part of our government is aware of these intrusions and depredations, but for its own reason is deliberately denying this fact to the public at large. There is a sad and depressing parallel here. The government lies and the aliens lie. Each apparently has a hidden agenda. Neither can be trusted. It's a pretty heavy statement. What did you think when he wrote that? And then actually, before you even answer that question, tell the audience very quickly, if you can, I know this is so, so long, how did you hook up with Bud Hopkins? How long did the relationship last? It was a platonic love affair, but one nonetheless, I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I after the June 30, 83 incident, the book Missing Time came back to my mind immediately because I knew there was a uh, place in the back where you could write to the guy if you thought you'd had these experiences. So I went back to the library and I got that book and I came back and I wrote him a letter and I gave it to my mom for her to mail. And eventually she did. And uh, he called. And I remember I was out when he called. Mom took the message. And uh, as I dialed the phone number, my hands were shaking and my heart was pounding. I could barely speak. And uh, 
as soon as I heard his voice, I knew everything was going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from that point on, we, I, I went to New York a few times. I had to sell my washer and dryer to get, uh, that I had in storage to get enough money to go on the bus the first time. And then he came to our house several times and interviewed neighbors and all kinds of people. And, uh, you know, he had testing done on the soil. He had testing done on me. <laughs> he managed to get somebody to, um, donate. I don't know whether they donated the actual testing or the money to pay for it because I didn't have the money. You know, I had a CAT scan and an EEG and I had verbal and written psychological testing done. And eventually down the road, I had something called a voice stress test, which is kind of like a lie detector test. Only I, it's kind of, I think it's set up a little differently. And, um, you know, I was so fortunate to have him in my life. He hooked, not only did he do all that stuff, but he also listened to me and he connected me with other people who were professionals because he was an artist. He wasn't a psychiatrist. He wasn't Mm a, uh, you know, a a doctor. He wasn't any of the, he wasn't any of those professionals, but he knew those kind of professionals and he connected us with these, us people like me with those people. First thing he did when I got off the bus, the first time, before I even went to his studio was he took me to see a psychiatrist, Dr. Clamar and in New York. And, um, he cared. He was a compassionate, caring person. I always swore up and down that he was an experiencer, you know, that he'd had, he's like, no, no, no. That's come up before he he would always deny it. Nope. Nope. He said, I had a sighting back on the Cape when with friends, but that's it. And I'm like, well, well, there's gotta be some other kind of reason why you're so thrusted into this in this way. We were sitting in his studio one day surrounded by boxes of letters and he was showing me people's letters that had described exactly the same things I had described him in my letter. And I looked up to him and I said, why did you answer my letter? Why did my letter end up becoming this book that you're working on now? You know, all all these whys. And he said, well, kid, because he called me kid. That's the $64,000 question. That's what he said. And then I looked at him. I go, you suppose it was destiny? And he goes, could be, you know, and uh, he he was just a wonderful person uh, who cared. And he connected me with buddies. He had a buddy system set up and he used to conduct uh, Hmm. experiencer, you know, uh, therapy group sessions, you know, just for people to get together and talk and share. Mm -hmm. Uh, He hooked me up with a lady, her pseudonym in the book was Mary. And I, she was older than me and farther along in her experiences than I was. And, and she was, uh, she's like, call me anytime there and I, and I did God love her a couple times mm-hmm. hysterical, mm-hmm. but it was somebody to help me and somebody cared, you know? And uh, I was blessed to have him for three years before it just kind of took off. We didn't want a book written about our family. That was not why I reached out to him. When I reached out to him, I was desperate. I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. I just wanted to be normal and be a normal person and have a normal life and raise my two boys by myself normally. And I was desperate. And that's why I reached out to him. And after the investigation, he's like, this needs to be a book. This is, this is important stuff. And I need to reach out and people need to know this. And me and my family are both like, uh, no, I don't think so. But you let it, you let it happen. Eventually talking- we let it happen. The pseudonym was to protect our kids and mm-hmm. our family. You Kathy know, Davis, right. Right. But then, you know, when I wrote my own stuff at that point, and I'd become somewhat of a researcher as an investigator for MUFON, Indiana for 10 that's years. Right. You know, I'm like, no, 
if I, if I'm going to be taken seriously and people are going to listen to me, I have to own it. Mm -hmm. Whatever I say, I have to put my name on it because any other way is just not good enough. And that's why I said, okay, it's coming. Buckle your seatbelts. I got approval from my family and my kids and stuff first. They were older, you know, and, um, I still was very protective. Mm -hmm. I still was very particular about how often I didn't go out and speak a lot, you know, but, uh, when I felt the compulsion, I, I got off, I got asked to speak a lot of times, a lot I'm of sure. radio stuff and going around speaking. Some, I said, yes, very rarely. I said, yes. And most of the time I said, no, I'll, I'll pass. Thanks. But it was those times when I accepted it, it was because something told me this is, you need to do this one because mm -hmm. somebody is going to be here that needs to hear this. And so that's how I, that's how I rolled for, you know, 25 years. Yeah. I start every show before the show saying a prayer, dear God, let this conversation go where it needs to go for the highest good of all involved let it go where it needs to go. And I knew that I'll tell you, it was uh, your recent appearance on Linda Moulton, Howe, another mutual colleague uh, her show about a month or so ago. I said, I know her. I said, I've got to get her on the show. But afterwards I said, I think I know Deb, Deborah. And it all came back when you, me and Mary Rodwell were hanging out, sitting in the, I forget the name of the venue at the Ciro conference, very small, uh, intimate, uh, conference having a wonderful discussion i said that's that's the woman so i love so mary i love her too she's uh kind of stuck over in australia right now she had been going all over the world but obviously in this new world we're living for the time being she's staying put but she's good everything is okay with her good. um I, as we we're going to wind down a little bit before we go to the patreon after show and i'm going to give a plug to what we're going to be talking about their journeys because it's going to be equally fascinating i do want to get your comment on that quote that bud made he made a very very strong statement the government lies the aliens lie uh and there's got to be some way to to he, i'm adding words now but there's got to be a ways of bringing the truth to the surface. What, what do you think about the statement that he made? And what are your thoughts on that generally? Well, generally speaking, I, he ain't lying. <laughs> I mean, it's true. The statement is a true, it's a truth because we, and we already, we already know, you know, on the government side, we already know about that. But um, also Bud was in the emergency room of the entire thing early on. He saw people that were train wrecks like me constantly. And I'm sure it had kind of a negative effect on his spirit that I, I, he was more focused on the negative side. You know what I mean? Because that's, he was so empathic and compassionate and wanted to help people so much, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, he, he felt my pain and he cried when I cried, he, you know what I mean? He was that kind of person. And so, and how many thousands of people did he see, mm -hmm. you know, before he passed away? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, that's why I said I was lucky to get him so, so, yeah. so well, I much to myself for so you long. You put him on the map. I'm going to say it again. Not you weren't the very first one, but you were one of the first, particularly of uh, this caliber. Let me take that back. The depth of your story, he really took an interest in. It became Intruders, mm -hmm. the book. It became a mini series guys on cbs you were so 
humble. Bless your heart. Yeah, well, I believe let me to you know, your horn. <laughs> he, well, I appreciate that. He he was, uh, you know, he was telling the truth as he saw it, and and he's not wrong. But I feel like it's bigger than that, and I feel like there's, you know, thirty eight years later and thirty eight years older and wiser. I feel like there's more to it than that. It's bigger than that, and I think there's more players involved. I think there's different. Uh, life forms, there's different agendas, some not good, some not bad, some neutral, mm. just mm. being, you know, being so, uh, and, and so, but as far as his statement goes, no, he's, you know, he's not wrong. And I, uh, I'm sure because obviously, you know, somebody doesn't write a forward or an afterward until they've read your manuscript. And I'm mm. quite sure there were a few things in my original manuscript that he probably cringed a little bit when mm. he read. Mm. But it, he allowed, you know, he he was he was like the greatest dad in the world to me. He allowed me to express myself and feelings and go where I always wanted to go. But he always used to say, don't ever give them credit for what you did, <laughs> you know, in my strength. And uh, it, I understand that. And now at my age, I, I understand wh why he said that. And, and right. he's not wrong there either. Uh, but um, have you yeah. heard from him since he's passed? Yes. One Can time I will. I would love to. I. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny because I never dreamed about him when he was alive, you know, and we had the. Um, we had this understanding. I got a letter in the mail a few months before he passed away inside of a book that he sent me that light, the latest book, uh, art life and UFOs. And he sent, and he wrote this beautiful letter to me. And basically he was telling me goodbye in the letter. And uh, he didn't have a very strong belief in the afterlife or God or anything like that. He was kind of atheist and didn't, he was kind of like where, when you die, you just poof, you're, you're gone. And that's, everything's fine. You know, and I always used to tell him, I don't know, I think there's more to it than that. And he's like, oh, okay, you know, it's all right. Uh, but uh, it was so strange because it was right after I finished this manuscript, finished it. And I was like, yeah, I finished it finally after all these years. And um, we, he and I were in the, and I had a dream about him. And it was one of my lucid, vivid dreams. And he was sitting, we were sitting on a patio table, beautiful sunshine, palm trees. He looked young and vibrant and healthy and happy. And I remember there was a breeze blowing through his hair. And I said, bud, is that you? Oh my God, you look fantastic. And I said, is it like I told you it was? Remember how I always used to tell you it was? And he just, he'd smile and he really, it was like a bobble, not a yes and not a no, but a big smile. And then I realized this dude is wearing a Hawaiian shirt. And I started laughing because the Bud Hopkins I knew would never wear a Hawaiian shirt. Um, all I ever remember him in was the little blue and white pinstripe, you know, <laughs> button up shirt and the sweater. But um, I looked at the shirt a minute and then I looked at him and I'm like, oh, I get it. It's a metaphor. You're, that shirt means paradise. You're telling me you're in paradise, right? It, I'm right. I'm right. And again, he just, you know, kind of bobbled his head a little like he did and big smile on his face. And I'm like, oh, I, I we had a conversation. 
I talked. He never said anything to me, but I was just running my mouth like I do. And he says, and, and I said, oh, and I finished the book. I finally finished it, you know? And he's like, kid, I'm proud of you, kid. Mm-hmm. And then I woke up. But when I, it's so weird because when I woke up, not only did I realize that he was, that this message was for me, that he was proud of me and what I had done. And he was trying to tell me, you know, I am still here. You were right. But uh, I felt like I needed to tell Lynn, Leslie Keen this message as well. I don't know why. So I sent her a message and told her this whole dream. And I said, and for some reason, I feel very strongly that he wanted me to also tell you that he's proud of you too. And she wrote me right back and she was like, oh, thank you. I'm sure it was him. And it's wonderful. What I did not know at that time was when her book, you know, the one about life after death mm-hmm. was becoming, had w- she was in the process of, I think it being on some kind of television show. Netflix, or I think the show, yeah. the, the series is on Netflix now. Yeah. That's that. Right. And that was going on at the very exact same time. And so, so the dream was like, recent. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Oh, my goodness. No, it was just it was right before I finished this. And, you know, it's weird because right after I finished the manuscript, almost immediately I had a publisher. And that's the same thing I happened the first time. And that doesn't happen in journalism. At least that's what everybody who writes books yeah. tells me. But uh, so I'm sure I've got help from the other side or from amazing. the next side. There are many sides. So, Wouldn't he love to be here right now? I'm sure he's living vicariously through perhaps both Leslie and and you. Look at what the, the story that Leslie broke, the story in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Let's end on this. Speaking of that, your thoughts on what's happening right now in terms of the uptick of discussion in uh, the phenomenon we're calling now deemed the UAP phenomenon, the task force report that is, I think the consensus is, at least in our circle, a whole bunch of nothing. But I have said and will continue to say, it's not what was in the report. It's the implications of why the report is being talked about. What's going on right now? What's your gut telling you about what's really going on? My gut tells me that while, yeah, nine pages isn't squat, and it's almost kind of, um, you know, a slap in the face in a way. Uh, but like you said, I wasn't, I was, I was fully expecting everything I saw, but what I didn't expect was what I didn't see. And that made me happy to me with these people, it's baby steps. And that was one little baby step forward because they didn't say it wasn't, they didn't say what it was. They didn't. And, and I feel really strongly that, you know, years back, they would have not thought twice about and had done before. It's not this, it's not that, but they didn't do that this time. So that made me feel hopeful. So even though, you know, it, it, it looks kind of BSE and, but it made me feel hopeful. It also made me feel like that this toothpaste ain't going back in this tube this time. Well, I love that. I love that. I don't think it is either. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, uh, I think we're in for even more of a wild ride. Not that it. And this is important. I mean, and the things I'm doing, things people like me are doing and speaking out now and trying to get people come out and, and tell your story because 
this is part of what's going to keep them from being able to walk it back again like they That's did right. in Roswell. There's power, there's strength in numbers, and there's, there's too many of us. There are millions of people out there just like me, millions. There's strength in truth as well. And, and yes, and so, and and I think at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, what we're able, what what we'll be able to get out of it is that nobody saw this coming. What is what you're going to learn is going to be something you never expected. Going to stand you on your ear, and it ain't what you think it is. I agree. I agree. I just I pray to God I live long enough to see it. I think you will because I think we're right around the corner, girl. I really yeah. do. I, uh-huh. I really do. Well, look, Deborah, what can I say except please come back soon because we barely scratched the surface. I know. I we know. barely scratched the surface. And in the meantime, journeyers, I say get this book, Extraordinary Contact Life, way beyond Intruders, even though Intruders was really good. Isn't it true, Deborah? I think I just heard you say that both Missing Time and Intruders was re-released by your publisher that published your book? Yes. Right? Talking about synchronicities, too. He was working out that deal uh, to do that before I even contacted him. And then in the middle of his working on that, here I came out of the blue. And he was like, what? To me, that's the universe speaks to you. There's a lot. You're on the right path. When I found out that about August Night Press, I knew immediately this is where I need to be. This is who I need to be with. Absolutely. Oh, what a blessing. Mm -hmm. So we will make sure, Deborah, that we have obviously the link to your wonderful book, but also the latest uh, or the re-release of both Intruders and Missing Time. So you can get it. And I heard you say, and I agree, if you are even remotely interested in this subject, you absolutely have to have these books in your library. So there you go. Now, very quickly, because we've gone over time, but that's okay. We still just scratch the surface. We are going to continue this, everyone, over on the Patreon after show. And guess what we're going to be talking about? Because this woman who is so doesn't want to talk about toot her horn, I said, I'll do it for her. Worked with MUFON. Look, I mean, the the resume is really long. She's got skin in this game and is also a, what can I say, an expert in EVP. That would be electronic voice phenomena. She sent me some EVPs that I've I'm telling you guys, we'll stand you on your ear. The clearest I've ever heard. We're going to take that to the after show. We're going to talk about EVP, talk a little bit for a little bit about uh, surrounding the recordings that you sent me. You were obviously there. You did the recordings and why you feel yourself to be an extra sensitive transmitter and recorder when it comes to these EVPs. So we're going to say ta-ta for now for the main show, heading on over to to Patreon after show, come join us and let's have a little conversation about EVPs. Deborah, tell us the website real quick where we can learn more about you because I know you got a good one. Before um, it's www.debshome.com. Deb's home, Deb's home. Come to my home and we'll hang out. And All you can right. email me through that too. Awesome. I'm sure there are going to be some folks that want to want to hook up with you. So, All right, my dear. Thank you so ever so much for this uh, amazing journey. My God. (laughs) And it continues. It continues. So I'm going to sign off for now. It's Higher Journeys. Thanks for joining us. We love you all. Deborah. I love you. So glad to see you again. Thank you. I love you too.
talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.